0: Welcome to the Habitat
2: Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host,
0: Jared Van Hees.
3: Welcome back, everybody, to the Habitat Podcast, where we are here to become better habitat managers. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and we have a great episode here for you guys tonight. We have a returning guest way back from episode 11, Mr. Phil Holcomb out of Pennsylvania. So Phil is a small, small property habitat manager like myself and Brian, and uh, we had a great episode with him way back on 11, so if you haven't heard that yet, go back to 11 and check it out. It's a great uh, podcast on no-till food plots, throwing mows, spray-and-pray, quick and easy food plot type stuff with minimal equipment. That is all back in episode 11. This one, though, we have Phil back to talk about the killing tree. So Phil has designed a killing tree on his property where he's had half dozen, if not more, bucks killed or opportunities at mature bucks on small nine-acre property in Pennsylvania over the past five, six years. So every single year, Phil is having an encounter at this stand. And we talk about how to make one of those on his property and your own property. Uh, We talk about the difference between modification and manipulation uh, for hunting purposes and habitat management. We talk about reducing your overall pressure by hunting one dialed-in stand with great access versus other stands with, you know, halfway access. We talk about precision volume hunting, understanding, you know, the time of day to hunt, thermals, wind, Phil has all of this dialed in for this one stand, and it's bulletproof. And uh, it's been working for him every year. We talk about funneling, steering, and creating some different patterns and movements, and um, you know, trying to force completely new patterns versus tweaking old patterns. That's something that Brian and I talk about all the time in our habitat plans. Is you know, you can change patterns, but it's all it's often easier to just tweak an old pattern and funnel something down by your tree, Stanley, Phil has done here. So, guys, a great episode, very informative. I hope you guys enjoy it. I sure as heck did. And I know that um, it's another great episode with Phil. We're going to have him write an article or two for the uh, Habitat Journal up at habitatpodcast.com. So be sure to uh, check that out at habitatpodcast.com and go up to the journal up top, and we will have a bunch of new articles coming out there this year. Now, this podcast segment is brought to you by Packer Max Cult of Packers, guys. Lincoln is already going through a ton of drums over there in Grand Rapids at the Packer Max headquarters. Uh, If you haven't seen yet, check out our YouTube page at Habitat Podcast. We did a Cribs version, if you will, or a tour of Lincoln's facility over in uh, northern Grand Rapids. And it's a great place. We talked with Link about his Packers, and you see how they're made. You see, you know, they're all assembled here in America, made in America, and ready to come right to you. So check that out. And then we also cover, you know, some cool things he's offering for the Habitat Podcast listeners. So, for instance, if you want a Packer Max this spring, we have 25 bucks off any Packer with the code HPC25. Habitat Podcast 25. HPC25. Get 25 bucks off the Packer of your choice. Thank you, Lincoln, for your support, guys. This packer is great. This podcast is also brought to you by HuntWise. So if you guys are not using a mapping feature on your phone yet, whether it's habitat-related measuring out your food plots, um, maybe miscanthus lines determining how many rhizomes you need this spring, or uh, even, you know, just scouting through the woods, I use it for scouting the most. I use the HuntWise app. Um, they're over at Hotwise.com. You can look, it up, look them up on any app store available. So, what I do, I have that on when I'm walking through the woods all the time. The different layers are very helpful with different topo, shading, etc. But mainly during our land plan services, when I'm walking around with a client, I have that thing fired up. I'm taking notes, I'm drawing shapes, I'm painting the picture in my mind while I'm walking the, the property. And then when I get back home, I can, you know, turn that into the artwork map that the you know, these beautiful maps that we give for a land plan client. So I use HuntWise every time I'm in the woods pretty much. And um, it's great for property borders and ownership. You know, uh, there's another instance in Ohio this year where we needed access from the bottom of a holler instead of the top where we had it from. And uh, HuntWise helped me find a phone number and make a call and get access. So, you know, us and the guys in the lease had great access by just using that app. So I urge you to check them out. Great Michigan company um, over here at HuntWise. Hit your app store or HuntWise.com. I'd like to thank Killer Food Plus, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Morse Nursery, The Habitat Hook, Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction. All right, guys. If you haven't been to HabitatPodcast.com, check it out. We have our land plan services up there where we're just there to help you guys get started on your property and uh, come up with a habitat plan and script on what you want to do over the next five, 10, 50 years. So check us out. We're up there at the land plan tab at the top of habitatpodcast.com. We also have uh, all of our podcasts, our hats, our shirts, if you want to support the show and like what we're doing here, all that's up at the website. And then uh, lastly, we, like I mentioned, we have our habitat journal, but what I want to talk about real quick before we get started is our Habitat group on Facebook. It's called Habitat Chat. We're already up to 700 members, and that, that group is just a huge learning dictionary of information, just amazing over there at Habitat Chat. And I'm just blown away by all the posts that are on there every single day. Um, so I urge you guys to check it out at Habitat Podcast on Facebook. Go to our group tab, and you'll see the group Habitat Chat. We'd love to have you there. And if you've left us a good review on iTunes or Spotify in the past and you haven't gotten a free decal from me yet, go to that group. I'm going to have a post up there where you guys can comment if you left me a review. And I'll make sure to get you that free 5-inch HP decal for uh, leaving us a good review on on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or any of the above. So with that being said, I appreciate y'all's support. Thank you so much for coming back. We have an awesome episode here for you, Mr. Phil Holcomb out of Pennsylvania.
2: And today I need to be on this one. It's a you know, east wind tomorrow. I should, I can hunt this one. Uh, we're gonna have a north wind the next couple of days. I'm gonna hunt this one. And what I've just done, especially if I don't have like bulletproof access, uh, I've just basically over hunted the property in a matter of a week by jumping around.
3: To yes, things, sir. Right. Yeah.
2: So I think you know. Uh, I think our buddy al actually he had uh written uh, a blog with you guys on small properties and and he kind of like you know kind of mentioned like putting all the eggs in one basket you know I think that's quite often quite the way you know like a a a pretty solid way to go when you're dealing with a very small property um especially if it, it, you have the ability to maybe hunt some other places, some public land, have permission pieces, whatever. Just the ability to not, uh, you know, put all the uh, the pressure on, in, you know, into one place uh, through the whole season. Get it dialed in for when you can hunt it, under what conditions, and, um, you know, you can kind of go from there. Um, you know, you get a lot of times you hear a lot of people talking about, like, Volume hunting versus like precision strike type of hunting. Um, I kind of have my place set up for it's kind of like a combination of the two. <laughs> like I'm looking for a certain uh, a certain set of uh, conditions during a certain time of year, um, and then I can get into that stand under under those conditions, and I can hunt it several days in a row and I don't really have any worry about over pressuring it
3: um, yeah as as I, mean, I, I want to dive into that a little further yeah. too you know what I mean I want I mm-hmm. want the nitty-gritty on on why you feel that you're never gonna pressure it I, I have some ideas in my head on how you set it up but um, I want to hear I want to hear your you're way at it, and just to let you know, I, I hit the record button a few minutes ago, so we're yep. just gonna roll. We're just gonna roll right into it because you're yep. already on a roll. Um, and so, I guess before we dive too far into, I mean, you started it off by talking about very important pieces of, of pressure on small property. I mean, glad you started off with that. That's we we harp on that all the time, as you know. Al wrote a blog on it. You wrote a blog on it years ago. I, I think I re- responded to your email today. I think you wrote that like way back in eighteen or something, didn't you? <laughs> you, you or maybe uh, even before that, you sent it to me and I I never responded to the to the email. that like, oh, God, this is sweet. <laughs> I wrote it.
2: Yeah. I've got um, I I had, I had written an article for uh, a small magazine. Uh, I don't even know if they're still around anymore or not. Uh, in twenty thirteen, I don't know if that's the one you're talking about or not. But then in twenty eighteen or early twenty nineteen. Um, uh, buddy of mine, uh, Steve Bartilla had asked me if I would write a little something up, uh, that he would put on his, uh, his Facebook page. And I did that. Um, yes. and, uh, so there was that one. they're both kind of like, uh, I don't know, a similar. Uh, one was, uh, you know, the, the article was, a, was a more in detail, uh, version uh, and then what i, I wrote up perceive in you know kind of like short more short form abbreviated kind of uh, uh, you know similar concept same same type of thing but just more short a little bit yeah facebook post size
3: <laughs> you know um, is that is that hard for you to make something smaller like that when you've already written it larger in, in terms of word number of words word count yeah
2: and and most of my most of my buddies will tell you, uh, you know, I, I've got um you know <laughs> I, I I can I can kinda of run on a subject
3: <laughs> you know, uh
2: for for quite a bit. Uh well, some of the guys that have actually been on uh, on the podcast before, some of my buddies uh Rich Yagi and Eric yeah. Salinski and Teddy Clark and oh, yeah. and those guys um in our in our group uh they they call it uh uh Finn P H I N Phil Holcomb induced narcolepsy. Uh, <laughs> I might I might uh get going on something and the next thing I know everyone's uh kind of dozed off for a while, you know? Oh my God. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, I I they they like to uh they like to remind me of that.
3: Well, I mean for those who haven't heard episode 11 of the Habitat podcast back in July of 2018, you were on here and we covered quick and easy food plots, no-till food plots, food plot insurance, addressing a new property, um, core versus home range bucks, you know, food plots in one day. A lot of... A lot of quick easy food plus stuff which was huge uh, that was a very popular episode and um I think you even heard that from some people who've reached out yeah. to you in the meantime and yeah know, I so, get, so I still
2: work. I still get um I still get messages on Facebook and stuff like that uh you know on a fairly regular basis of hey I, I stumbled <laughs> on this you know like
3: just two and a half years later
2: yeah just ask I, I got some questions or whatever and and uh more often than not i end up making a like making a new friend out of it and that's kind of yeah. cool you know um a lot of times i'm like look man it, it might be easier if you just call me or something cuz my two my two thumbs tapping away on my phone are just not gonna not gonna cover it you know what i mean so yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah that, that that's all that's cool um really uh i enjoy enjoy hearing from people and being able to help people and, and that type of stuff
3: no, and, and you're good at it. The way you uh, can convey the information, whether you're, you know, the uh, P-H-I-N or, or not, <laughs> it's, uh, it's good and it's simplified and, I mean, it works. So, you know, some of the no-till stuff we covered before, not to dwell too much on that, I just encourage everybody to go back to 11, all the way back, 100 episodes ago, <laughs> and, uh, and you'll find that one. And we've been talking with Phil and friends with Phil since then. And you've you've had a a couple good runs since then, haven't you?
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, actually, the the fall after that podcast, I shot my best book to date. Um, and uh, uh, then that was a pretty that was a pretty uh pretty rough year for food plotting. Yeah. Uh, it 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 started raining. I think it was July seventh, <laughs> and then it didn't stop until like late October. Um, So it was tough. Uh, And then it's kind of interesting because this past summer was the exact opposite. We had one of the more severe droughts we've had in this area, uh, you know, in, in decades. So, um, you know, that in and of itself, like, you know, you, you gotta, like I said, with the observation, you know, you try different things and different uh, conditions. You, you keep track of the conditions and, understand how they may or may not, uh, impact what, you know, what you did or, and, uh, you start to kind of figure these things out and, and have, a uh, you know, a lot of different, uh, um, uh, experience to draw from and, and understand, you know, like how you can kind of, uh, cope with a lot of different, uh, environmental conditions and, and, you know that's just, that's a big part of it, but uh, but yeah, 2018 was a good year. I shot um uh, uh a 133 inch eight point four and a half year old deer, um and then uh, the following year, uh 2019 I shot a, a nice eight point younger deer uh it's two and a half year old, and then uh, uh 2020 this past fall I shot a nice three and a half year old uh, 110 inch eight point really good buck um all of them were really exciting hunts i mean uh, the big eight point uh was a uh, late october bucks um which is uh right about the time like the way i kind of um set things up on my property that's like about that's like right when it really starts to shine uh you know i mean? I'm sure that's the same across a lot of places.
3: Yeah. Late, late
2: October is is gorgeous. <laughs> you know, it's like that's that's when things are really starting to happen. Um oh, yeah. that was that was an October twenty fifth, uh cold front evening. Um I had been getting deer um on my my small food plot there, uh really early, like afternoon, like you know we're we're before, well before daylight savings time, and you know between one and two o'clock in the afternoon, I was getting them in there a lot. Um, and uh, I actually, when I got there that that afternoon, and uh, I get to, I can get to a certain point and I can see food plot from a distance, and uh, I can see that there were several deer out there, and I I literally I was like, eh, I still got enough time to. Run over to this other piece and, and get in a tree over there. I don't want to, necessarily want to pressure them. And then I just kind of was like, you know what? I'm just gonna walk up there like the, like I own the place
3: <laughs>
2: and uh, climbing my tree. And uh, more often than not, you know those deer they're they're local. That was all the, that was you know the dog the one doe group that was in there all the time. They're encountering my scent all the time. You know, all through the all through the uh, the summer and into the early fall, and I'm in there still working on uh, food plots and uh, maybe even checking cameras and stuff like that. Like they're fairly they're fairly habituated to me not being a threat. Now, if I try to sneak in there and they bust me acting like a predator, that's a bad thing. But if I just walk up there, they're gonna see me from like 150 yards out. And they're going to be like, oh, wait, you know, what's going on? I'm going to keep walking, normal, upright, no eye contact. Uh, and they'll they'll probably just run off like they don't normally do and be back in 45 minutes. Um, so I did that. I just opted to, you know, whatever. I'm going for it. Uh, walked in there, bumped them off, climbed up my tree, got situated, uh, and, uh, and then – continued to second-guess that move
1: <laughs>
2: for, like, the next two and a half hours. And uh, all I saw was uh, two gobblers and a uh, and a button buck uh, who were quite entertaining um, because they were interacting with each other and stuff. But at the same time, I was like, okay, so I just blew that. That was dumb. <laughs> I thought I knew what I was doing. Nope, nope. Um, and, I, and And they never did come back in. Uh, and we were getting down to, like, uh, the closing, closing minutes, and um, I thought to myself, well, you know what, uh, before they show up right at, you know, last light, and then I'm going to get stuck in the tree for 45 minutes or an hour, uh, I might as well just exit now. While nothing's here, I can see, I'm, I'm sure I'm clear, I can get down and get out clean, we'll give it a week they'll be back to normal no no big deal whatever uh, and as I was kind of like gathering myself up I heard uh, I heard a deer um, on that determined pace like not a trot not a run not a walk but that determined you know pretty brisk walk
3: I love that pace
2: yeah and it was uh, down the hill from me coming off of a Coming off the neighbors' piece, and uh, I thought to myself, "Okay, so we got one coming in. Well, let's see what's happening." And I had known that there was this this one particular buck that had been in there a little bit early, you know, uh, about a week prior, uh, with daylight on the clock, and I. So I'm I'm at that point. So I got a lot of beech trees in the area, so they hold their leaves um, fairly late. Yep. And uh, and still green. You know, and, uh, so I'm having a hard time looking back in that direction because of all the beach leaves and I hadn't heard the, uh, the walking in, you know, 30 seconds or whatever it was. And, and so I'm like, okay, you know, it's gotta be around here somewhere. And then all of a sudden they realized the deer was standing about 26, 27 yards right below me, uh, standing, um, up, uh as best you could up towards the food plot but I that's a part of what makes it stand good is uh, some of the uh, blockading hinging and stuff that I've done um, from that direction of, of, of approach so that uh, they can't just come in and then stand there and scan and see into the food plot and and know that there's nothing there um, exactly and uh, so they, they've got to commit to uh, I have two trails. And, um, the other thing is, is usually the way the wind is, especially in the evening, at that point in the evening, the thermals, uh, things have started to drop and are starting to head downhill. If I have a westerly prevailing wind, um, and as high it into the tree as I am, and the approach from that direction is, uh, downhill of the tree already. So I'm really high up in a tree for where that deer was standing, um, and the combination of the, the thermals and the prevailing gives that deer the sense of he's able to, he's, he's also scent checking the area, um, but he can't visually see beyond what he can scent check. Uh, so he felt comfortable, you know, and that's, that's what ended up working out for me. Uh, if he, from where he was standing, if he chose to go to the trail to the left, I had a slight concern. Of getting winded, um, but most likely he would be. Uh, I would I would get a shot before he got to that point. If he chose the trail to the right, I was good until he was at 12 yards or 15 yards in my lap. So uh, there was an intense little bit there uh, where he was standing surveying, and I mean he was he was testing the wind. Um, he chose the trail to the right. And I got my shot at like uh, you know 12, 13 yards or whatever it was. So
3: very nice. Eight point two. Yeah, yeah. He was
2: 201 pounds dressed. Um, big deer, really big deer. Uh, and he he followed a network of um, of trails that I had made um, to kind of funnel some movement out of um, uh, a generalized kind of bedding area. That is a little bit further back into the neighbor's property, but the way this kind of lays out, um, I, I was able to like kind of neck down their options coming as they're coming across and out of that area uh, to come up onto my property. Um, just before, uh,
1: Yep. Before we get too far down that rabbit hole, just uh, <laughs> and anybody that didn't listen to episode eleven, if you could just take a few minutes. Introduce yourself real quick, tell people who you are, where you're from, sure. what you do for a living, if you want to share that, and any yeah. other info you might want to add.
2: Yeah, not a problem. Uh, my name's uh, Phil Holcomb. I live in uh, northeastern Pennsylvania, very rural area, uh, and uh, I uh, have a small property that uh, has been in the family for a number well couple generations at this point, uh, and, uh, uh, got kind of interested in, um, uh, habitat, uh, wildlife habitat, uh, specifically deer habitat, uh, probably right around 2001, 2002, in that time frame, um, at that point in time, there was, uh, some, there were some resources that you could find on the uh, on the internet, uh, and then over the next like couple of years, those resources seemed to really kind of grow. Uh, one of the main ones, which I'm sure a lot of the listeners probably uh, are were were a member of or a part of, was the the QDMA uh, user forums, um, along with you know some of the other uh, uh, some of the other Forms that kind of spawned from that, um, but uh, but anyway, yeah, I uh, I, um, I work uh, for a really uh, pretty large corporation. I work in manufacturing. Um, we make uh, paper products, uh, and uh, it's
1: not Thunder uh, Mifflin, is it? <laughs>
2: <laughs> no. Nope, uh well, different type of paper uh paper towels and toilet paper so <laughs>
1: you're not uh, far from scranton yeah. no
2: not far from scranton not too far at all um but uh but yeah so uh, i i've been uh, uh i grew up in a in a hunting family uh i grew up uh bow hunting gun hunting doesn't you know small game deer pretty well generalists um, and uh uh I've been involved with uh, the Pennsylvania Bow Festival, uh which takes place right here in Sullivan County every year for the past sixty four years. Uh it's one of the largest, if not the largest event of its kind. Um my uh my grandfather and my great uncle were two of the uh founding members of the uh the festival association. Uh yeah, I'm uh, I'm third generation, my son will be fourth generation. Um I'm currently on the the board of directors and the uh uh the uh, the president of the board. Um and uh so bow hunting, uh deer hunting uh in general just something that I've been uh, obsessed with since I I was a kid. Um you know, so uh I did spend some time living in a pretty suburban environment uh, uh, on the east end of uh, Long Island in New York and uh, spent a lot of time out there bow hunting small parcels, uh, you know, and and that's kind of what's kind of has always uh, been something that, you know, helped me um, when I moved back to Pennsylvania and having – this particular parcel in the family, and you know, uh, with it being so small, a lot of people just kind of overlook those type of places uh, and think, ah, it's too small to hunt, you know, that type of thing. And and yeah. uh, having spent quite a bit of time hunting hunting uh, parcels that were even smaller than that, <laughs> you know, uh, in the in the suburban environment, uh, that's that's a pretty a pretty good chunk of ground to work with. So. Um, you know, that's kind of where it started for me and, 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 uh, uh, some of the, you know, just recognizing that there's an opportunity there. And I think that's an important thing for, for everybody to consider. Like, you know, there, there's opportunities out there that, uh, I think a lot of people are overlooking and, and, uh, you know, I'd like to encourage, you know, people to, to, uh, to kind of step back and take a look at them, evaluate them. I mean, sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're not. Uh, sometimes you find, uh, you know, an absolute honey hole, <laughs> you know? So, uh, Absolutely. but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of how I came, came to it.
1: Very cool. Well, getting back to the killing tree that you were talking <laughs> about, I want to hear more about that. Let's dive into that. And, uh, what your thought process is and, and, why do you think they're that a single killing tree is a good idea?
2: Um, yeah. So like I was saying before, I think sometimes on a, on a smaller property or, uh, your best bet in a lot of ways is to just really dial in one, one particular setup and, and keep that, that pressure down, um, with the smaller property, you, you know, it it can be, uh, pretty easy to overpressure it and then it's done. Um, Deer will avoid the, the sand locations, if not the majority of the property in and of itself, and you're just not going to have uh, any opportunities. So um, I think in a lot of ways, <clears throat> getting, uh, getting dialed into one particular setup uh, just kind of helps um, abate that, uh, especially if you can figure out the access pieces, getting in and getting out clean. Um, As well as then, once you're in the stand, making sure that you're not uh, uh, kind of blowing the place up. So um, my particular instance, uh, I have some topography that really works to my advantage. Uh, uh, A good chunk of my property uh, is actually below the military crest of the hill with, uh, with the rest of it kind of coming above it. So I have an opportunity there to kind of uh, set up on that um, and use uh, a combination of prevailing winds and thermals to give me an advantage um, that, uh, you know, makes it so that uh, I, once I get in that tree, I I can feel pretty confident that uh, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not going to get picked off um, by the wind. Um, Access is, uh, is the second piece. Honestly, I would rate my access to that tree like more like an A minus instead of an A plus. I have another tree that's about 37 yards away that the access is better. The problem is the cover. Um, sure, I get picked off in that tree. I've tried that tree. I get picked off <laughs> visually. I get picked off. Um, however, the access portion is actually better in that tree. I've tried a couple of different things. That to kind of try to work around uh, uh or prevent the uh, the cover issue, but I just haven't found anything that that seemed to to work to the degree that i would I would like so I've stuck <laughs>
1: kind
2: of stuck with this this one particular tree and it's it's worked out <laughs> so can't argue with that um my you know' in terms of why it's a, like a, I'd say an a minus is I have about a 25-yard window that I've got to walk across going into the sand uh, that there's a likelihood that deer are going to walk across. Um, However, uh, that buck I shot in 2018 walked across that and never put his nose to the ground. Um, I do take some elimination precautions. I'm not nearly as anal retentive about it as I used to be. Um, When I first really started getting serious into bow hunting, like all of that stuff was just kind of starting to come up uh, with all the uh, carbon clothing and all the sprays and washes and stuff like that were really popular and, and like taking it to like, you know, the umpteenth degree was starting to be like a thing, and like I really went down that <laughs> pretty deep for for a number of years, and then it just got to the point where it was too time-consuming and expensive, and you're just like, well, you know, how many <laughs> how many deer have been uh, uh, killed, you know, throughout the uh, eons without any of this? I'm I'm sure <laughs> there's a way to just kind of have a happy median. The,
1: Oh, yeah.
2: Currently, my my scent elimination or scent control, rather, because I think it's more of a control than it is, is a, an elimination proposition, um, has been focused on on the uh, the feet now. And even even saying that, like I still wear I still wear le- leather boots all the time. I don't have to have rubber boots or anything like that, but. I basically just scrub my feet pretty good, uh, keep cleaning socks, scent-free socks, uh, spray down my boots pretty heavily. Uh, pretty much everything from the knee down gets, gets, uh, you know, sprayed and, and everything right before I walk away from the, from the truck to head to the stands. Uh, so far, that's been, you know, good enough for like 95 to 98% of all deer that encounter my scent trail. Um, and, uh, the remaining percent of those that uh, remaining, uh, you know, five to two to five percent, um, have like a, a momentary pause where they recognize the fact that there was, a some sort of a, a scent, uh, it usually results in a head up, look around, uh, look around, look around, uh, cautious walk, um, and then right back to normal. So, uh, you know, and again, I attribute a part of that to the fact that, uh, like, I'm on the property enough that I have uh, – most of the resident deer have encountered my scent at some degree, whether a few minutes old to a few hours old, um, a number of times throughout the year, and it's never meant danger, so they just – you know they're fairly habituated to it. It's not a complete alarm. Um, and then the time of year that I'm focusing my efforts on trying to trying to kill a buck, uh, the bucks have enough uh, testosterone, aggression, etc. enough interest in the ladies where maybe a residual scent of a of a human they've ever encountered is hardly enough to keep them from. Uh, Moving forward, or you know, if it is, like I said, it's about a 25 30 yard stretch, um, there's a good chance that they're in range already. Uh, right. And so, that's a gamble I'm, I'm willing to take. Uh, and so far, it's worked out for me. I'm sure at some point in time, it's probably uh, you know, <clears throat> had one uh, encounter it while I, you know, after I'd already been gone and maybe uh, have an adverse reaction, you know said so, you, you know you just you just don't know you never know but so far it's been uh you know uh, uh, minuscule enough that i I don't see, <laughs> I don't see a reason to, to change it you know um
1: yeah. Stay but broke don't fix it
2: exactly and um but who's to say another like a, another another small piece um another property uh it might be enough that you really need to reconsider your access and Move to the other tree and try to make that work or whatever. But you know that's that, that again. It goes back to the observation. Um, you just got to be paying attention to that type of stuff. Um, but uh, going back to the killing tree, you know, like I said, uh, access is a is a major component. Um, understanding what your prevailing wind and or thermals are doing and how you can use them to your advantage. Um, and, uh, and then on top of that, uh, you start to get into um, your habitat modifications or manipulations and improvements, right? Um, sure. I think you're, now,
1: now, before you get on that path, yeah. uh, with this philosophy, starting from scratch, and you want to pick out that single tree, do you try to find something where the deer are spending time, Passing through, or are you looking more at access as your first priority? Like, walk us through your mentality of, of finding that killing tree. Like, what your priorities are?
2: Yeah. So um, that that's that's definitely one that that's <laughs> that's a million dollar question. Um, I think uh, I think in some instances you can probably um, you can probably just manufacture it. Uh, and I think in a but I think in a lot of instances it's more a matter of um, picking picking one that is already uh, in a place that has a pattern of movement um, and then determining what it takes to alter or improve the pattern of movement to make that tree work um, So <clears throat> in this particular instance it was a, a number of years of... I literally just was like, okay, that tree is like the right size. It's kind of like where I want it to be. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to put a stand in that and then I can actually, you know, put a food plot over here and put one over here. And it, and then it, it just, uh, it started to, to work from there. So a, a part of that initial setup was, was dumb luck of that tree happened to be in the spot where it was. And I thought that seems like a good tree. And then, several years of of hunting from that tree, I started to realize there was opportunities there to make it a little bit better after having watched a number of deer just out of range or not come through on a, on a line of movement that was going to bring them to me and, and just starting to see these things. I'm like, okay, so there's gotta be some way that I can, you know, alter this so that I'm just creating, you know, a, a pattern of movement that, Is putting them in range for me. And um, another, you know, another thing I think is important too on small properties. And this again, this depends on the exact layout and everything. I I don't spend any time trying to get deer to bed there. I basically want them to like filter or cycle through. Um, so that I'm also I'm, I'm reducing that potential for detection. I, I don't want a whole lot of time. I don't want them to spend a, a whole lot of time. I want them to spend enough time. <laughs> um, that makes sense. Yep. Right. <clears throat> if I had a bigger property, I would be focusing more on capturing as much of their movement as possible. But you know, let's face it, on that small of a property, you're not capturing that much of the daily slice of the movement, you know what I mean? Like that, you're just not going to, so you might as well try to set it up to be as sure. advantageous for hunting as possible. Um, and that's, again, that's one of the, 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 the points I wanted to make too was, uh, with the smaller pieces you're, you're looking at, uh, a, a, from a hunting perspective, if that's your overall objective and priority is to create, um, the best hunting experience that you can, um, then by all means, that's where you need to focus. Um, and that's usually done through your habitat modification or, or manipulation, um, creating favorable patterns of movement um, to be capitalized from a hunting perspective. Not so much a habitat, broader habitat uh, management or improvement type of uh, um, philosophy. That's not to say that it can't be done both ways, but to me, I start with that hunting focus and then kind of work my way out. Um, I've gotten, you know, where on my, on my property, I, I do things that I am, uh, making improvement for, uh, non, you know, non-target species, you know, not all, not all for the deer, you know, pollinators, uh. Small mammals, birds, you know, I, I enjoy doing all that stuff. I um, target non-native invasive uh, plant species and and uh, work on uh, trying to not <clears throat> trying to knock them down, um, you know. But at the same time, I, my focus goes back to what do I need to do to set this up to be able to get the most out of the hunting, you know? Like I think I think that's an important thing. Uh, I know a lot of people who. Listen to the podcast probably are very much interested in, you know, broader spectrum uh, habitat management things, and, and I think that's great. And on the smaller properties, while you may not be able to make uh, as significant of an impact on the landscape level, um, you, know, you still can, you know, do some more stewardship-oriented things uh, um, that uh, ultimately increase uh, or improve um <clears throat> the type uh and and uh quantity of habitat available for things other than deer um so i just wanted to make sure that that's <laughs> that's something that people could keep in mind too you can you can uh you can have your cake and eat it too um in a lot well, of ways That's
3: what i was just going to ask you i was going to ask you to define your your difference between those two because i'm in the same exact boat i mean yeah. Like you said, if I had an extra 10-acre field that I wasn't doing anything with, it would be a lot easier to to add in more of a designation for, you know, maybe five more acres for pollinators instead of one or two, et cetera, <laughs> yeah. et cetera. Right? Like, but yeah. to to your point and, and my point and you know, um, Brian's, you know, our original idea when we set this whole thing up was, you know, to help us have a better hunting experience. And Now, like you said, it's grown into – yeah, our our listeners and guests, we, you know, focus on everything, not just deer, but I'm glad you yeah. you kind of mentioned that because I think it's something to think about and it's okay. Cuz even yeah. if you even if you only set up for deer, you are accidentally helping a lot of other <laughs> things out, right?
2: Yeah, totally. Absolutely. And and usually I've found like it, most people like their their introduction to doing anything related to habitat might be in order to have better hunting for deer. Eventually, down the road, what ends up happening is you, a lot of people, get exposed to other concepts, uh, the idea or um, the ability to do things to the habitat that might benefit not just deer, but other species. And then, you know, like uh, me personally, like having, um, uh, like I said, I used to live in a, a very suburban environment and uh, I was an outdoor uh, an environmental resource educator when I when I was there and uh, one of the things that uh, I did like as a part of my job was I, I made wood duck nesting boxes um, I, I made them and went out and scouted uh, the wetlands um, and uh, and drainages and things uh, to install them. Went out and installed them. I checked and maintained them. I kept the data from um, uh, all of the uh, basically like the hatch success. Um, And uh, I've never hunted a wood duck a day in my life. I've never duck hunted ever. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yeah, still haven't.
3: Awesome.
2: Um, I mean, I would love to. I, I just I don't have like a whole lot of opportunities, and I. That time of the year, like I got deer oh, on the brain, right. yeah, you know, it's
3: deer season like, for sure, right? Yeah. So yeah,
2: it's just one of those things that it's just never never been a priority to me. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not to say I, I wouldn't, I mean, I have lots of friends who do, um, but you know what I mean? Like, that's where I think a lot of people can end up sometimes. Like, they're focused on deer, they start to learn about habitat, uh, improving it, etc., for deer and for hunting purposes, and then like. The opportunity arises for, and it's like, or, or some exam, something happens, and you're like, oh, well, look at that. No kidding. You know, I didn't know uh, that, that doing that would have helped this, and I saw it, and it happened, and like, that's awesome. I'd like to do that again, or what else can I do, you know? So, personally, I, I think that, you know, we we in our kind of community have gotten so solely deer focused and the blinders on and you know not only deer but you know big bucks mature bucks this that like that we start to like we've kind of forgotten about all these other opportunities for you know um helping other species and and just enjoying them and 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 then it's another excuse to get out there and do another project yeah um also it's, it's something that You may be doing it to help this other species, but it's still, ultimately, it's adding to the diversity, um, you know, like, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I think, I think people can do that on small, small parcels, um, obviously there's consideration depending on the area where you're in. If you got an extremely high deer density, you could be for an uphill battle, um, trying to, uh, do certain things to help other species because the deer are just going to wipe it out, um. Without significant protection or you know stuff like that, but you know there's opportunities. And again, the observation. I'm I'm really big on like you know the experimenting, like being like, hey, I'd like to try that. Well, guess what? Give it a try. Just be yeah. observant, understand what what's happening and and how things are responding. Document it if you have to, um, and then and then go from there. You know what I mean? You can can always try to figure out another way to
3: improve it. Um, but uh, Yeah, it's just the evolution of one as a habitat manager. You know, you're really, really just becoming better habitat managers. It's our slogan or whatever. We say it all the time, shameless plug. But it's, it's, <laughs> you know, it's something, like you said, we never thought about that until we were exposed to it later on. You learn about these other projects. Oh, those are cool too. And you yeah. want to help out, you know. Everything yep. Cause we, we we care about these deer more than just to shoot them and eat them. So yep. it's like it's kind yep. of a it's a cool all around, all encompassing thing, and and I'm glad you you dove into that, and and I wanna I wanna keep harping on this this killing tree. Um, <laughs> did you mention what kind of tree it was yet?
2: Yeah, it's a sugar maple.
3: Sugar maple. Sugar How big maple. around would you say?
2: Uh, I can't hug it.
3: Oh, any, okay, it's big. Okay, yeah, I can't hug
2: it at any height. <laughs>
3: okay, um,
2: and uh, it about the level of, that the stand is on. Um, there's us uh, see four larger limbs that start to split off of the main trunk, so you get to kind of like nestle in. You know, you're kind of tucked in a little bit. You've got oh, some other limbs coming out off of them, which give like a depth of uh, cover. Um, you know a uh, it's a big enough trunk that if you're sitting in your stand or standing uh, against the trunk, um, not moving, you know, you're, you're just not going to get picked off. You're not going to get silhouetted. Um, and uh, the, the sand is uh, 24 feet to the platform. Um, it's sloped. The ground uh, is sloped, so actually directly out in front of the sand the land starts to slope up away from the tree um so having it at that height is uh, kind of necessary um because uh as deer come in from that direction the closer they get they're they're a little more they're not at eye level they're still below you but you're not as high up as as you are when they're right below you um and then behind the tree the, the it starts to slope away a little bit gradually um, about 30 yards behind the base of the tree, the military crest of the hill drops right straight off, and it's steep. Um, so deer approaching from the downhill side, I'm, like, way above their periphery um, and uh, their, their peripheral vision. Um, and uh, as long as I'm in there under the right wind conditions, my, my scent is way above them. In the morning, with a rising thermal, um, they've got no chance, uh, (laughs) no chance of picking my wind. If you're coming from the uphill, uh, coming from downhill to the uphill, Uh, in the evenings, uh, once it it settles and it starts to fall, I need a I need a a a particular prevailing wind to keep it from falling um, steep enough or fast enough to where a deer coming from that, uh, direction would be able to get into my scent stream. Sure. Um, and that just happens to be a a prevailing wind that's, that's very common. Um, so that increases the, uh, the ability. I can hunt it in, in the mornings and the evenings. Um, and, uh, as long as I have those conditions and, and, again, I've spent a lot of years sitting in there uh, with, you know, the, uh, everything from milkweed to, you know, the little bottles of the Windicator dust and all that. I've, I've even uh, done the smoke bombs in a in a beer can with the, the top cut off, sitting on the platform yeah. of, the, of the stand. Um, just, again, the observation, figuring out, like, well, those, those, these are the conditions, and, don't hunt them when they're not right, um, and uh, you know, hunt them when they are right. And as long as the conditions are right, you can keep going back. Um, as long as you're not, you know, as long as you weren't detected, uh, for the most part, you're you're good to keep going back. Um, so, uh, some of the other things that set that up is uh, yeah, so not only is
3: more about those traits. Yeah, what's around it exactly?
2: Well, that location, like, so aside from where the, the tree physically exists on the landscape, um, again, where you got uh, wind and thermal as well as access, those are, those are Im- important considerations. And then from there, um, <clears throat> kind of the, the attractions, like layering in um, the attractive uh, modifications or manipulations, right? Um, in this particular instance, like the way the property lays out, the way the surrounding properties lay out, uh, and the way the deer identify um, or, like, uh, relate to all of those things. Uh, I needed a, an attraction, something that would bring them uh, to me, um, and uh, that, particular, that particular attraction just turned out to be, Uh, A highly attractive food source, particularly from, let's just say, uh, September through January. Um, The the type of food plotting that I do, um, I've now got it where, like, even though it's a very small food plot, like, I have attractive uh, food growing in it year-round. I get deer in there all the time, 12 months a year, but I have it so the peak you know, the peak is really that September to January timeframe in specific October, November, December, drill it down even further, making sure late October through early December are like prime. That's, that's what I'm shooting for. Right. In terms of the food plot. And then, and how big,
3: how big would you say that plot is?
2: uh, It's only a third of an acre. Yep. Gotcha. Um, it's an irregular shape. Um, and, uh, you know, in the previous episode, we went over kind of my methodology and what I plant and how I plant it. Um, so I don't. I mean.
3: Yeah, we can direct right. the listeners back there to to hear right. all the good no-till stuff. And your soil's probably pretty good by now, I'd imagine, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, it's 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 not bad at all. Good uh, got here. Got pretty good uh, organic matter, and uh, yeah, um, it's it's I'm I'm just pretty much at a maintenance level um, in terms yeah. of my. Uh, Anything that I am adding in, uh, and, and I've gotten to the point where I don't, outside of, uh, giving some brassicas a little, a little boost of, uh, nitrogen, yeah. um, I don't really, I don't do much of anything. Uh, every three, I think three, I think I've been on, yeah, three years, the lack, uh, yeah, th- three years I'm adding some lime. Okay. That's, that's about it. Um, but, uh, so you have that food attraction, um, and then, um, mock scrapes and, and, uh, and a water hole. Uh, so this year, like I said, this past summer and, and even into the early fall, we had like record drought conditions. Um, and that water hole paid, uh, paid dividends. It was, it was super popular, um outside of that I will tell you this uh there were there were times where I sat in my tree and I looked at that water hole and I was like eh, I should just get rid of that thing it's just taking up space um don't see a lot of use out of it for whatever reason some work some don't uh I have a, a creek right at the bottom of my hill um i you know it's just one of those things i don't sometimes they're highly attractive sometimes they're not uh, just like brassicas, some some places deer walk through, you know, two foot tall brassicas to get to something else, and other places you can't grow them. <laughs> so, <laughs> or
3: or just like a mock scrape, some yeah. work, some don't get touched. No,
2: exactly. So, um, my mock scrapes I use, um, basically for. One, for trail camera purposes, to to kind of get an inventory and, and uh, an idea of what bucks are in the area, and I also use them on the hunting side for positioning the deer for a shot opportunity, um, <clears throat> and uh, basically, I would say that I have three, the way the food plot lays out, I have three mock scrapes on it. Um, and when I say three, each one is like a cluster of licking branches with a big, with, with, I mean, it turns out to be like a truck hood underneath it that gets the ground that gets scraped up. Um, so it's really, it's like, it's, it's the, each one is like three to four licking branches. Um, there's only one of them that's not actually in bow range from that particular killing tree, but, um, it creates the scrape line effect. So I, I've kept it. Anything else that allows a, 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 a that, that was a potential for a scrape for a buck to make, like I've removed it. Um, I just wanted it to all be just the ones that I could cover um, from that tree, basically. Um, so, so those, in those particular ones, uh, 2000, let's see. They're, they're yeah, they're, they're a decade old now, um, and uh, I'm, I mean, some people use scents and have great uh, success. Some people say they don't work or they <clears throat> alarm deer. Um, some people just pee in their own. Some. Uh, like, I haven't used a commercially produced scent in a number of years. Um, yeah. I... Like I said, they're the they're going on a decade at this point. Like, yeah, sometimes August September, I'll go in there with a stick and really rough up the ground underneath it and pee in it, and then that's about it. That's all I do to them in a, in a given year anymore. Um, and uh, you know, so you're they,
3: saying you're saying that Phil Holcomb's year and is not commercialized yet. Nope, not yet, not yet. <laughs> I think <laughs> some people are taking like business opportunity. Yeah, but I'm just saying. Well, it it's all my, plastic bottles for a living, <laughs> so, I mean. it's, Well, there you go. Well, heck, we got an opportunity.
2: Um, you know, may, I don't know, maybe it will put, put them to sleep or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so strategically place the mock scrapes, uh, the water hole, the food plot, and then um, kind of like the next layer is uh, kind of steering and funneling the deer uh, through these – Attractions, if that makes sense. Like, so I've created a network of trails, like coming out of the wooded side, um, I've used hinge cutting to create certain trails that I want them to, um, use to access the attractions. Um, mainly that's for steering them out of the potential for getting my wind, um, for bringing them into shooting range and into shooting lanes. Um, and then also like move the, the overall, like kind of the pattern, the, the linear movement that I want to keep them moving. Like they come out and they feed because it's a small secluded plot. It's close to, um, mainly dough bedding. Like they come out, they eat and then they move off to the primary food sources. So, you don't have them really like uh, you know milling around uh, in range for an excessive amount of time, where you know you are increasing your odds of getting picked off. Um, whether that's you move at the wrong time, you have to sneeze, you know, <laughs> whatever it yeah. is, whatever reason where that that old nanny picks her head up and goes, "Ah, uh, yeah, I don't like that." Um, right. And uh, no,
3: there's no point in calling attention to yourself, and you know,
2: yeah, yep. And so you don't
3: have to on a small property because it, it hurts you more if you get hurt. That's exactly exactly
2: it. And then the kind of the rest of the the property is more like old field. Um, okay. And so I I just I just basically I mow trails. Um. So the combination of coming out of the wooded section of using hinge cuts, uh trees, and using the tops. Um, and, uh, and then I created a little um, early successional staging plot. It used to be a food plot. Uh, it was on my downhill side. Yeah, I um, remember that one. I didn't like it as a food plot because, again, they stayed there just long enough uh, that I had uh, concerns of just little micro switches in the wind and a little stray scent gets to them, you know, and that's all you need. So now, with it being early successional, yes, there's some things that they will come in there and they will browse around and stuff um, for a little bit of time, but it's not not quite the same as, you know, a little hidey hole of, of brassicas or something like that where they're just right. not, not quite and, as attractive. Yeah, but the the other part of the attraction level of it is the cover aspect right. of it. And oh, yeah, that's what I want to get into. When that's what stages them coming from that direction, it serves as a little area where they come in, they pick off on some of the pokeberry, um, some of the blackberry brambles and stuff like that, they're kind of picking around on, um, and then it it because of that, especially in the evenings and late afternoon, that thermal is starting to pull down the hill. The main food plots just uphill of them. They feel like they're getting the wind of the food plot area, and they have the cover that they're kind of situated in, but they can't visually from where they are, they can't see the food plot all that well. just gives them just enough incentive to go ahead and move up out of there to get the visual. They feel secure enough because they've got that little bit of cover, and they've got what they think is a wind advantage. Um,
3: So do they ever not check the food plot because they're on the downwind or on the down thermal downwind thermal side, I, where
2: I have not seen that yet. Um okay. and I I think it's it's I think a lot of times the deer they just have a check down, you know. Like yeah. It's like, it's like okay, everything smells all right, you know. Everything looks all right. I, I don't hear anything, you know. Like yeah, why not go check it out? Right at this point, it's like well, I know there's a big ass scrape up there that every deer in the area is hitting. Uh, I want to go check that straight and see what you know, what the status is, what's going on. And while I'm there, I could uh, get a little bite to eat uh, since the coast is clear, you know, like, uh, or yep. in the odd scenario where, like, this year, there's a water hole. Um, so that kind of, that works. Um, and... uh uh, and then on the uphill side, like I said, it's mainly old old field type of uh, habitat, uh, early successional and um, i've I've mowed trails um, <clears throat> uh, that kind of collect them from the bedding areas outside of my boundaries and uh, just kind of entice them to walk that particular route into. The uh, you know like the epicenter of the attraction, and what that does, and the way I the angle I've cut the trails and stuff, they're not um, since they're coming from uphill. They're the trails are angled so that their vision is not focused in the direction of my tree. Sure, it's angled so that when they're looking more or less straight ahead, um, <clears throat> they're 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 not looking at me they're not looking directly towards my tree
3: that's a sexy little detail did you um <laughs> learn that the hard way or did you just do that by happenstance or tell me about that a little bit because i mean i want to ask about that and, and and the cover um i don't know if you're you know directing through hinge cuts, or you you mentioned directing it was yeah. the the mode trails it sounds like uh, yeah. how high is that cover on both sides of the deer when he's moving it's, through there and is there a food yeah. plot trail? That he's walking on, or is it just a trail? It's
2: just uh, so a buddy okay. of mine has a. Has a, has a thing to be just a trail. No, uh, my buddy of mine has a uh, DR walk behind mower, um, mm-hmm. and it's literally the width of the uh, the brush cutting head on that, which is like 30 inches. And um, I don't. The way the food plot is shaped, there's a part of it that is essentially a food plot trail. Okay. Sure. And that's where I'm kind of part one of the one of the directions I'm collecting deer from is is kind of coming into that and then moving along. I kept that purposely um short because I don't want a deer to come out onto that and get uh hung up with taking their time picking along picking along. Next thing you know, they don't quite get to where you need them and
3: it's yeah. dark. dark, yeah. Yeah. So, so you mow the cover around that, or you keep the cover shorter around the entrance to the food plot, or what I would call maybe a little funnel where it's still skinny, about to get larger into the food plot.
2: Yeah. So it's just like a little finger off okay. the main body of the food plot, and it's 15 yards at its at its widest, and it's uh, you know maybe nine nine ten yards at its narrowest, and then there's mode trails that come into that particular little narrow spot. Okay. And then and then there's a there's a mock scrape about halfway the distance or the length of that narrower portion that leads into the bigger part of the plot. Um and uh uh the other mode trails as far as like how I kinda decided to um set them up so that um like they weren't looking right at me because again, it's, it they're come when they're coming from that direction, they're uphill. The further away from me they are, the the closer to eye level they are. Okay. So, uh, in the afternoon, the way the sun, uh, is facing, I'm kind of I'm fairly illuminated. So if they're uphill of, of me and about or about you know uh, eye levelish with me, and I've got a bright sun um just the slightest movement and i've been looked at and, and or even when i've been sitting there perfectly still i don't know what it is maybe they weren't even looking at me but i felt like uh they I stick out something yeah exactly so um and again like the, like i try to use these modifications or manipulations to create an advantage um yeah so, the advantages are, you know, to keep them from smelling me, keep them from seeing me, keep them from, you know, detecting me in whatever way possible, just so, you know, again, you, you try to get that advantage, and then going back to that, you know, select, you know, as I call it, precision volume hunting, where...
3: Oh, you took the words out of my mouth. <laughs> nice segue, Phil. Nice segue. I was just going there. Yep.
2: So, awesome. that, that's what I'm looking for. It's a precision strike, but I can repeat it over and over again as long as the conditions are right. Um, And I
3: guess, I mean, before you dive into that a little more, or maybe explain what that means and hit that point, then I want to hear about how it turns into volume of success over how many years. I mean, you've had quite the amount of opportunities here, and I think we haven't really touched on it after I hit the record button, so... The listeners are probably wondering, like, how good is this killing tree? <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, I mean, I've I've killed five really good bucks for for Pennsylvania. Um, Heck yeah, you have! And uh, the last three years, it's been a three year streak. Um, and uh, let's see, I want to say 2011 was the first year that I I kind of like uh, at at the point in uh i i had uh, had been uh let's how how enlightened
3: <laughs> okay <laughs>
2: you know for hey i can I can do these things and manipulate things and and you know deer will respond to them in a in a certain way right so by that point in time I was already starting to mess around with different techniques and methods and stuff and like still you know trying to see how everything how the deer respond so like 2011 I had a buck that I ended up having three years of history with um but in 2011 he was a three-year-old 120 125 inch nine point uh at the time definitely would have been the biggest deer I ever shot um and was just you know for my area like that's a that's you're in the upper 20 percent like that's (laughs) you're not getting too many opportunities like that so um Nice man. I, uh,
0: same
3: here. In Michigan, it, same here.
2: Right, and I just, you know, I I needed him to take about three more steps, and I would have had a shot at him. Um, didn't happen. Uh, it was a cool encounter. Uh, he was uh, harassing a group of does. Um, and uh, there were two young bucks in in the mix, like like one year olds, little guys. And I got to watch him posture and chase them off, and he would come circle back around, and, like, he would almost, like, corral the group of does into, like, a pile, and then he would, like like, come trotting into them, like, a, and it was like a bowling ball hitting the pins, and those those would scatter, <laughs> and then he would, like, sort it out a little oh, bit so more, cool. but then the little bucks would be like, oh, yay, you know, and get back in there, and then he'd have to chase them. I mean, it was just, it was awesome. It was like two hours that I watched this whole thing um, just continue to happen. It was, I mean, it was never, it never got into range, and then the last time he hit that group of does, like a like a bowling ball, Um this one like trotted my direction and I was like please <laughs> please please let that be the one you know like if oh my just, just let's you know please and then he stood there and he stood there and he looked over at that doe as she was walking my way and he put his head down and just um basically started a determined walk and um he ended up uh, kind of nosing her around a little bit uh and getting, like, heading towards the one shooting lane I have in that direction. Um, And uh, she stepped into it at, like, 34, 35 yards, and, uh, and then she bedded down. She just laid down right there. And he stood there for a second, and then he laid down. And they stayed there for 45 minutes, and I ended up sitting in the tree for like, you know, however long after uh, dark because it it just it it got dark and and that was it. Eventually, as I was sitting there, I heard a little bit of rustling over there. Uh, it sounded like they stood up um, and she started to walk away, and he he was kind of grunting following her, and they walked off. Um, and then I found one of his sheds. Uh, that winter um, and then uh, the next year he he blew right up into a uh, he turned into a, a ten point uh, as a four-year-old and and was uh, every bit of uh, into the low to mid 140s I found one shed off of him that winter I I saw him from the sand twice but the, it was never within range and um, you know he that was kind of some of the experiences that like galvanized like how do I How do I make it so that I don't just see them passing by out of range? Like, how do I start to try to figure out a way to, like, just the way the movement is going to flow, they're going to end up coming right by me. Um, Then uh, the next year, I actually, he ghosted. Uh, I know he got injured um, after he had shed his antlers uh, um, the previous year, uh, and I ended up finding his complete set the last year, his match set, um, and it was a total freak show of uh, uh, I think he has 15 scoreable points. Um, he actually he went down. Yeah, he he went down in 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 overall uh, in gross score, but in character it's it's a it's a really really neat set. I'll send you some pictures sometime, but um, cool. and then. And then that deer, uh, disappeared, but, um, so anyway, uh, 2011 I had an, almost had an opportunity at, at, that buck, uh, 2012, um, I, uh, like I said, I saw him, saw, saw him, uh, from stands. uh and had a number of, uh, of bucks uh, on trail camera in daylight in in bow range for my Sam with uh, me not in it <laughs> um, of and uh, and then in 2013 I shot a uh, uh, 120 inch um, well he, w- he, he would have been about 120 inch as an eight point he broke it he broke one uh, uh, g3 off on his right side about uh, he's got about two inches of it left on his beam. Um, if it matched the other side, uh, which I think it probably did, uh, he, he would have, he would have been right around 120 inches as a three year old.
0: Uh, and then 24. Solid
2: yeah. Great buck. buck. Uh, 20. Oh, and he's one that used, uh, some of my, was one of the first bucks to really like he, he read the script and he followed my, uh, some of my, uh, Habitat manipulations, like to a oh, T, like okay. almost like exactly as you visualize it when you sat there. You know what I mean? You're like, that would be so
3: cool. And then he it's gets almost it. like you have to shoot him <laughs> now. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, if you're dead now, sucker. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Follow my plan. It's too pretty, and yep. I mean, I'm shooting any three-year-old that walks by me here on my property. So don't, <laughs> yeah. don't get me wrong, but it's almost yeah. like if you follow the script like that, buddy, that you're, right? You're asking for it, man. You're asking um, for it. Yeah, it takes a
2: better man than me to, to <laughs> tell you that um, and then 2014 I shot uh, I actually I'm I'm obsessed with uh, six or seven points like uh, something about a, a big three-point side that I I think it's cool and
3: they're super rare they're just unique yeah yeah
2: and uh, this is I'd say he's a medium six point he's a he's he's a, he's a pretty big six point but um he was a big body two-year-old and he was a bully he was the the day before I shot him, um I watched him chase off uh two different uh two year old eight points that antler wise were much bigger than he was. Um and uh he, he was chasing does he was grunting he put on like a pretty legit show and then he followed uh the script the next morning to a T uh from a a, a kind of a project I had done the, the previous winter and he was like the first buck that did that on that, uh, 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 still from the same tree, but the uh, different side of it. And I was like, when I saw him coming in and I saw, I recognized him from the, from the day before. And I was like, uh, also it was, there was three days left in the archery season and, uh, my son's birthday is, is pretty much, right, right around the end of our archery season. And it was his one year birthday party was coming up and it was like crunch time, like got to get all the preparations, you know what I mean? And I was like, yep, that's happening. And, uh, so I, I shot him. Um, and, uh, 2015, I ended up missing, um, a, a, a big buck. Uh, he was, uh, low 140s, 10 point, um, as, uh, uh, he, was, he was a three-year-old that year. Um, Man, Phil.
1: Yeah, big,
2: big deer. Pennsylvania
3: uh, he, studs.
2: Yeah, he, he went on to be pretty much a local local legend. Uh, had three more years of his or two more years of history uh, with that deer before he was finally killed. When he was killed, he was just shy of 160 inches. Oh, um, my. Yeah, uh, so I missed him uh, at 18 yards. I hit a branch uh, in, in low light conditions. I called him in, uh, so that was a, just still just an incredible experience, um, and it, and the, the, the crazy part is, is, like, over the next week, I saw him, like, three more times, um, but he wasn't falling for it again. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, 2016, uh, I started getting pictures of a buck. Oh,
3: hold up, hold up, sorry yeah. to interrupt. uh um, yeah. Do you think... So, he wasn't he wasn't going to fall for that again. What if you had a different killing tree? It's just possible. throw a wrench into this yeah. entire podcast. I'll just yeah. throw a wrench right in the whole damn thing.
2: It's, um, it's I mean, entirely,
3: was he still on your ground?
2: Yeah. Uh, oh, shoot. It's entirely possible. Um,
3: it it's actually, like maybe the wind wouldn't have worked out for that. You know what I mean? Because you were in your stand for a reason.
2: Yeah, and the so... It's funny you mention that because after that season, that following spring, I started um, prepping uh, a new tree. Yeah, Yeah, there you (laughs) go. And it was based on what our
3: minds think alike.
2: (laughs) It was based on what that deer's movements were. But then I ultimately decided that it would have been that to make that move. It would most likely be your stereotypical precision strike, one and done. You sure you either you either kill or you blow it up. Yeah. And and I ultimately decided it wasn't wasn't worth the burn to blow the yep. whole property up to to do that unless you know, but like I said I prepped the tree and was like should something tell me that that's the move that I need to make, then then so be it. But I
3: think that's uh, all you can do.
2: I like right. that. Yep. So I made a couple little modifications up there and and did some uh, some hinging and brush stacking to kind of reinforce what I had seen that deer do, um, but to make sure that it ended up by the one tree that I had prepped. Um, but then I've, since then, have never never put anything into that tree.
3: So all well, those big deer do something weird and unique, right? Yeah. So it's like yep. you're going to change your whole plan around for one deer that's already. You know, down history. the road, yeah, yeah. history. So, yeah, you know, who knows? But anyway, yeah. sorry about that. 2016, right. you were saying?
2: <laughs> yes, yeah, 16. I had, um, uh started getting pictures of a really good nine point. Um, again, he probably was mid to upper 120s. I felt he was probably a four year old based on his body. Um, and he was daylighting in mid October, uh, evening and in the morning, which was really odd uh, for my property. Um, and, uh, it wasn't until October 24th. Um, I got in there in the evening. Um, I actually had, uh, harvested a doe. Uh, and, um, a lot of people sometimes, you know, be like, wow, you're pretty crazy, like shooting does at that time. Um, I get a pretty good, like, pretty good feel. Like, okay, I can shoot that one. Where it's standing right now, most likely where it's going. Once it gets dark, I'm good to get down, get her, get her out of the way, and we're gone. And pretty much no disruption. I I don't feel too bad about that, you know. Like, um, and and I'm also I'm a bit like my family. We're big venison eaters, like, and that's a huge part of why I hunt and you know, that, 2016 was a, was a, also a a year with a lot of, uh, changes in my, uh, career and stuff like that, so, like, time-wise, it was, like, it made sense, I I shot this stuff, and it worked out pretty much perfect, and, and I was, like, uh, you know, doing, like, okay, uh, I I, uh, you know, I should be, you know, I should get down, get her out of here, and, um, as I I lowered my bow down and uh, I was just standing up to get onto uh, the the climbing sticks and uh, <laughs> I hear uh, I hear a buck grunting and I'm like oh boy you got to be
3: kidding me <laughs> oh boy <laughs> how it goes
2: yeah and up up the up the hill this this deer came and he came into that early sectional staging area and uh, nice. and pretty much you know did the whole like he was scanning, checking,
3: and you're already you thinking, "Where have we seen this before?"
2: Well, this you is know. the first time I actually saw them saw him oh, okay. do, do this. Okay. Um, and uh, and then he uh, he eventually um, kind of moved up the hill, uh, in heading towards the food plot. Uh, he was moving up through one of the trails I made, and he had the uh, you know the sixth sixth sense. <laughs> and uh stood there on high alert looking around. Uh and basically just uh turned around and and uh walked out and uh did that kinda very stiff legged, like I'm not very happy about what's going on here, something's up type yeah. of uh walk. And and he got you somehow. Yeah, he, he knew something was up, he didn't like it and uh he Thermals never molded or something. Yeah, never blew didn't stomp, didn't cause any ruckus, didn't, didn't, never flag, didn't run off, just vacated the area, uh, and then coincidentally that was the, uh, the last encounter with that deer. Uh, and I, I, I never even got him on camera again. Um, and then uh, 2017 is uh, when I experimented with that other tree, uh, and uh, I got, um, I got, I got picked off on that as I was, uh, making, making my move for the bow. Uh, it was a nice three and a half year old, hundred inch, hundred and five inch deer. Um, and, uh, he picked me off. I, I just, uh, wasn't, uh, I was used to the advantages I had in my other tree and, uh, made a little bit too quick of a move and he literally just picked his head up, looked right at me Got and, uh, and then basically uh, backed out the way it came in and circled way out and around me. Um, and then 2018, I shot the big eight-point. Um, 2019, I shot a, a smaller eight-point, two-year-old eight-point. Uh, and then this year, I shot a, like 110 inch, um, three and a 110-inch three-and-a-half-year-old eight-point. Um, and that was all from the same tree. And all of those, I mean, they were uh, – the 2019 buck he was he was a cool one that was a november deer uh i uh, had two small bucks um uh out in front of me and and uh, one of them had spent the entire morning running around grunting his head off um i mean i'm not joking that that deer grunted three four hundred times in in wow. like two hours
3: That's like so cool was, though
2: yeah it was awesome and uh and and he was kind of like taking a little like R&R he actually bedded down in the food plot about 20 yards out in front of me uh and then this uh, the eight point ended up shooting came in and uh he came walking in he worked uh worked those scrape and he decided he needed to show those uh those two younger bucks, uh, you know, who was boss and bristled up and and did the little side, you know, sideways walk with his ears back, rolled his eyes back in his head, and and uh, did like a bluff charge on the one, and then at wow. that point in time, I was already at full draw and couldn't help myself. Wow! <laughs> and, I don't blame you. Uh, yeah, it was it was cool. They were all great hunts, um, great stories. Uh, I don't have a single single regret. They all, you know ate well, I and mean, we, we had, uh, many good meals out of them, I've got a problem with, uh, I'm gonna need to acquire more wall space, and,
3: <laughs> <laughs> I hear you
2: there, um, but, uh, but I, I, I do my own, uh, euros and stuff, so, you know, spent the time, uh, getting them all cleaned up, and, and, uh, I've got some, got some plaques from, uh, from wood that I cut from the property that I'm going to eventually, uh, get finished and, and, uh, get them mounted on and, and, uh, that'll be, you know, that'll be kind of cool. It's just, it's been, it's been great. I mean, you know, uh, by some people's standards, you know, they're all kind of medium, but, uh, for me, I mean, they're everything that I could ever want in a hunt and,
3: uh. Well, there's only one person's standards that matter.
2: Exactly. And, and that's that's how I hunt that's that's what i do i hunt my hunt I'm not too concerned about anything else and you know when you're when you're up there in the tree and you put a lot of work into the place and things are working kind of the way you want them or the way you want them and you know uh it's exciting and the adrenaline's you know pumping and and uh you know sometimes it's just you can't ask for anything better than to have that opportunity, take the shot, make it count and, uh, and have the memory, the experience. Um, you know, I've always, always, uh, hunted with some guys that are older than me and, and, uh, you know, one of them was a huge uh, believer in the only way you get good at killing deer is by killing deer. And, um, uh, in a lot of ways, I think that that, that's a, a true statement. There's you know there's probably several ways that could be interpreted and you know is what it is uh you know over the years I' passed passed a lot of bucks I've passed bucks that are the size of or even bigger in some cases than some of the bucks I've shot it's just you know sometimes you the the, the the trigger gets tripped and that's all it is man and it's a good time and and uh you know i I don't have uh I don't have any uh uh, any regrets on all of them. I think it was a uh, just been a, a really rewarding experience to uh uh get the opportunity to be able to work on a, a piece of ground and, and harvest some really good uh really good bucks and a lot of does and you know, you just uh you know just been, been blessed in that regard.
3: Wow. Well I mean I don't think I could have wrapped up a show better myself. Um, you literally just told a ton of information with a bunch of good stories and, and tied it off with a bow. Um, <laughs> but I always have one more question, and I wasn't asking this question back when we had you on the first time, so I'm very intrigued on yep. in what your answer is here. I think you know what's coming. Uh-huh. Uh, I think I might know the answer. It might be Sugar Maple. But, uh <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think it is. So I'm gonna, I'm wondering, Phil, what's your favorite tree? Habitat or hunting? Whatever. You might just oh, look man. at it. No. Yeah, that's cut it up and throw it at your smoker. I don't really know. <laughs> that's
2: a that's a tough one. That's a tough one for someone like me. Okay, uh, can,
3: give me two then. You can give me two, That's fine. All
2: right. So uh I guess one that is a tree that I've always been uh kind of obsessed with since I was a kid uh, and have always just had an appreciation for, which is uh, the eastern hemlock, um, Suga, mm-hmm. Suga canadensis. Um, it's always been a been a tree that, uh, like I said, I mean, I just, growing up as a kid, it was one of the first ones that, you know, I learned uh, to identify. It was a tree that, sure. as a young uh, Cub Scout and Boy Scout and all that stuff, you know, all the, uh, the older... Uh, Scout leaders and stuff. It was an important, you know, survival tree because the little dead branches uh, make great tinder and are always dry because they're sheltered, you know, from you know from the 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 rest of the the tree. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, uh, I've had some really awesome uh, tree stands in hemlocks. Great cover. Uh, a lot That's of what I was gonna
3: say, heck yeah. yeah.
2: And sometimes you don't even eat climbing sticks or anything like you can just use the branches you know like old school back in the day had quite a few of those uh, (laughs) um and then uh it's uh uh, unfortunately with the uh uh, woolly adelgid um we're starting to lose them um so you know uh i like the smell of them i mean there's just a lot about a hemlock that's always been a tree that i've just been intrigued with and then um I guess uh secondarily and this this is probably one of those things where a lot of people be like wow that's that's an oddball ball one um oh cool especially cuz I kill a
3: lot of them <laughs> right. um
2: the uh american beach um oh yeah so that's to the me first on here yeah it's an iconic tree uh oh, again that's unique, yeah uh and 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 the forests that i that I grew up in and that I hunt a lot in, um, are dominated by, by beech and, uh, to a lar- you know, lesser extent, uh, hemlock, um, in my particular area, we don't have, we don't have any oaks, um, and, uh, the only real hard mass producing tree, uh, is a, is a beech tree, which, um, most people might not necessarily know or, or realize, um, you know, like a lot of masting trees, you have um, you have bumper years and you have non-mast producing years. A beech tree uh, has anywhere from a, a two-year to a seven-year cycle. Um, in most areas, the beech trees will all have kind of a similar cycle. In my area, it's like a five to seven year. Every now and then, it's five years. Occasionally, it's six years. Sometimes the seven years where you have like the majority of them masting, um, it's a bell curve, so you'll have some trees that uh, will mast uh, every two years, have some that will might not mast, uh, you know, like every eight years or something. Um, but you know, somewhere in that that five to seven range in my particular area. And when uh, when it's raining uh, when it's raining beech nuts, it's actually some pretty incredible. Pretty incredible hunting. I killed my bear in 2017. I was
3: gonna say, bear, I love them.
2: Yeah, bear, grouse, turkey, deer, coyotes, like, you name it. Wow. And especially when in an area that's, uh, you know, like I said, there's no other hard mastery. So, like, they're a real true, like, uh, you know, treat type of thing. Like, when they're on, it's on. Like, you'll you, you you'll find the wildlife just really stacked on those groves, those beach ridges and flats and stuff. Um, and uh, uh, like the uh, the ridge that I killed my bear on in 2017, uh, in her fur she just had beech nut husks all tangled in her belly fur. Oh, no way. Yeah, and then um, I saw another bear about 15 minutes after I shot her. Um, that whole that whole area looked like. Somebody was in there throwing hand grenades. It was just tore up. The forest floor was destroyed in, like, you know, two or three acre area. Um, All manner of wildlife, grouse, turkeys, like, it's unreal. Um, So, you know, in areas where there's beech and there's oak, um, a lot of times, even in in hard, uh, in in the big um, beech-masting years, there's usually, like, enough acorns that, it's completely overshadowed, but in the absence of the acorns, beech are pretty impressive as far as a masting tree. It's just, you know, there. Uh, it's a, it's a long time between <laughs> between bumper crops, and then there's also the whole management issue of uh, beech bark disease, um, that uh, really caused some some serious problems for uh, other beneficial forest regeneration. Um, but uh, uh, nice.
3: And you can have like a you can have like a beach monoculture in in some forests too. I mean, yep. northern northern Michigan where I hunt, um, similar to some parts in Indiana, similar to where you're at. Yep. You know, there's just beach everywhere. All there is, <laughs> is beach. Beach. Yeah. And uh, it's it's got some cover, which is nice. Um, and it's just it's it's beautiful too. But I yeah. mean, there's just there's a yep. bunch of it.
2: Yep. And, and that's another part of the thing I like about it in our area, uh, in terms of like up in the some of the big big tracts of public land and stuff like that, like the where the beach bark disease has killed out the mature stems, um, all the sprouts and suckers that come up from that uh, very shallow uh, rhizome system root system um, forms these dense stands of you know we call it beach brush. Um, and uh, you know, you're talking thousands of whips that are anything from you know pencil to you know one or two inches in diameter, anywhere from three foot to ten foot tall, and um, just stacked on top of each other. But the beach holds oh. the leaf, you know, the beach holds the leaves so late that a lot of times some of those beach brush thickets, um, especially uh, when you get later into the fall and into the winter. Um, Represent some of the only you know cover uh, in in some of these large forested tracks. So a lot of times they actually end up holding a lot of deer um, just for the just for the cover aspect alone. Especially once the hunting pressure really you know starts to stack up um, and they just need to get into some cover and get away. Uh, but yeah, so there you have it. Two fairly uh, I guess probably not so popular trees but they're two of my
3: favorites (laughs) no that's awesome man and and I'm glad you have uh some different answers and uh you know I think both of those are are fresh to the podcast so appreciate that (laughs) yeah not a problem well I know uh are, are you still planning on possibly contributing to the habitat journal yeah absolutely so I was just gonna say a way that people can find more from you um, your podcast episodes will both be up at our website and then we're gonna start getting some some articles and some content from you which I'm super excited to read and uh, get those up here too um, and but if anybody else doesn't want to go to the website can, where else can they find you and and I uh, want to ask you questions or, or anything else' it's, it's worked before, so. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Facebook's probably, like, the easiest way. Um, so, just uh, just my name, uh, Phil Holcomb. Uh, if anyone, you know, wants to uh, reach out with any questions, you know, by all means.
3: Oh, that's awesome. And you've been a, you know, super big help, you know, to, to our listeners who have reached out to you. There's been a few of them, and, uh, you know, help to me as well, so. I appreciate you coming on again, Phil. It's been long overdue, and uh, don't think there won't be a third time because <laughs> I'm telling you right now, there will be.
2: Awesome. I appreciate it. Look forward to it. Um, so, uh, yeah, for sure, we'll be we'll be in touch.
3: All right, man. Well, hey, be safe this winter in the woods with your chainsaw, and uh, I'll be hearing from you soon.
2: Awesome. Will do. Likewise.
3: Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat Podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, habitatpodcast.com, we have our Habitat Property Consultation Services on there under the land plan tab check out our HP land plans there we also have hats t-shirts and decals up at habitatpodcast.com of course all of our podcast episodes and then we have a new habitat podcast journal where we can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts um, you know more of a blog post from us every now and then we'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram Facebook and YouTube found the habitat podcast and please subscribe that really helps us and thank you very much to our sponsors. We have Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Packer Max Cultipackers, Huntwise, Killer Food Plots, The Habitat Hook, Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction, and Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better, habitat, and...